Philippians chapter 4, uh, we'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Iodia, I plead with Sinithia to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petitioning with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. We've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the small church in Philippi, the first European church. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, a church that he had particular bonds with. He was very um, close to them, very um, considered them to be his friends. And as we've been looking through, we've been seeing ways in which uh, God's uh, bringing new things to birth in, in their community as they discover what it is to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, new heart, new purpose, uh, new ambitions, new longings, new direction. Uh, new, res new, new confidence, new friendships. And as we now come to, to chapter 4, and we begin to think about the end of the letter, and, and, and Paul's beginning to wrap up, he starts talking about very practical things. And it's a way of, for him to root some of what he's been teaching already in reality. Sometimes we, we, we're sort of up on, on the theory level, and now we're coming down to, to real-life things. But here's the thought that, that Paul has. He's been talking in the previous chapter about, about running the race, about pressing on, about uh, leaving everything else behind and pressing on to, to, to win that prize. The question is, how do we keep going? Beginning of our chapter, uh, he says this. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, you can sense his affection there, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Stand firm, that's actually a uh, technical uh, word that was used to, uh, to talk about soldiers in the military context. When they were confronted with the enemy, uh, they had to stand firm. The Roman soldiers, it was both a word used to describe the individual soldier faced with opposition and, uh, and the cohorts together. As they faced the enemy coming, they needed to stand firm. How were they going to do that? You know, it's one thing to receive something uh, and to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
that relationship that changes our lives when we suddenly discover we don't have to work to please God, but God comes and freely gives his love to us and he renews us and he changes us. That's an amazing starting point. But of course, we're then called to live by that good news and to play it out in the, 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 the often complex situations of our lives. And, and how do we keep going? How do we keep firm? How do we keep firm when things start to go wrong? Or when that initial zeal starts to wear off? I came today with, um, with two medals. My son Samuel, this one's from the, the half marathon from Paris um, that he ran a few uh, months ago. And this one's from the, the marathon in Bournemouth that he ran. And it says on it, finisher, finisher. Paul's not just interested in starting the race. He's interested in finishing the race. And the call to us as Christians is not just to start. Because what God has for us is always more. And the relationship with Jesus Christ is always to be deepened. God always wants to bless us more so we can bless others more. He always wants to change us so that we can be used to change and transform society, his world. So we can be agents of change. God doesn't ever want to just stop where we've got to because that's only part way along the path. And so whether we're taking the image of the race and that point in the marathon where you begin to really flag <laughs> and it's tough, how do you keep going? Or the image of the fight and you, when you're, you're faced with all that opposition and the struggles, and how do you keep going? That's our question tonight. And God gives us through this passage and through these very practical remarks from, from Paul uh, three areas where we can be resourced as Christians to keep going. And it all centers on our minds. It all centers on our minds. It's not a surprise, I suppose, because when we start thinking about our minds, that is the battleground very often. That is the place that a lot of our struggles uh, play out. Uh, Jesus said that sin begins in the mind. That's very often where things begin. And that's not surprising because our minds are one of our greatest assets, aren't they? We were made as thinking people. In fact, our minds are what, in some respects, differentiate us from other creatures. We have an ability not just to... Um, to, to respond mechanically to things, but we can actually analyze. We can think, we're, we're, we're called to be, we're, we're self-aware. And in a sense, our minds and that, and that capacity to be self-aware, to, to look at ourselves from outside, as it were, to analyze, to question, and then to interact creatively with others, to be relational. It's what it means to be built and made in God's image. And as Christians, little by little, we discover what it is to be remade in Christ's image. But a part and a key part of that is the remaking of our minds, the honing of our minds. And we need to work on that because our minds are not only a source of extraordinary creativity, not only that amazing gift from God that, that actually defines us in his image and makes us who we are, but our minds are also... Um, well, the Bible says that our, our minds are affected by sin. Our minds are fallen as well. Our minds, in other words, are capable 
of the best and the worst. And today in society, um, our minds and our thought life and what comes into our mind is, is con we are constantly exposed to any manner of things. And so the question is, how do we have that right mindset so that as Christians we can keep going and so that we can go from strength to strength so we can receive the good things God has for us but not just for us, for those around. And that is really what we long for. So as Paul comes to sort of earths his, his, um, his teaching in the beginning part of chapter 4, we see three areas where, where he really wants to um, just encourage us in the area of our minds, how might God uh, renew us so that we can keep going uh, and do the distance, as it were? And there are three things that he suggests for us. The first is people. The second is prayer. And the third is practice. Okay? So let's just look at those quickly. First of all, people. Um, very interesting. Verses 2 um, and 3. Uh, we seem to have a problem in this wonderful church. I mean, Philippians, the Philippian church was a, was a really good church. It's the, pretty much the only letter that we have from Paul which isn't criticizing some fundamental problem. Uh, but there are nevertheless problems in it. Listen, we've had here the um, uh, Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know anything about those two women other than, verse 2, the fact that they don't seem to be able to get on. Well, there's nothing new. Um, we all have difficulty with each other at times, don't we? But he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind. Hear that? Of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, it's interesting, they're named. Uh, Paul doesn't generally name people. He tends, especially if he's critical of them. Uh, so I think we can assume from the context that it's not some sort of doctrinal problem, because if it were, Paul would be very clear. He, he knows how to correct when doctrine is wrong. And he doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't take sides at all. We can probably assume, therefore, that it wasn't a moral problem either. This is a problem between two people and probably two leaders of the church. That's uh, most likely why he names them. How can we be sure of that? Well, um, because he names them in the context of a team. And that team he calls his co-workers. Very interesting, therefore, that one of the first churches was co-led by women. I just open that parenthesis uh, and then close it. Um, but clearly here they believe in team leadership. That's really interesting too. You know, this isn't a church that's led by one person. This is a church that's led by a team. But here's the problem, they don't seem to be able to get on. Now, if you have leaders who can't get on, then that affects the whole church, doesn't it? Especially if, as seems to be the case here, the issue is not, it's not personal or, 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 um, or doctrinal, the issue is to do with direction. The issue is to do with, um, with, with, with common vision. Uh, because Paul uses exactly the same word here that he uses in chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says this, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, doing one, uh, being in one in spirit and of mind. And then just after that, he goes on saying, This is what you should have, the mind of Christ. Okay, chapter 2, verse 5. 
uh, have the same mindset that was in Christ. He who, although he had everything and he was on, of one being with God, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. Remember that? Yeah, that picture that we had of Christ. That is the mindset that we're called to have. Now, it seems like the problem in the church was that these two women don't have the same mindset. It doesn't mean that they have to agree on everything, but it does mean they need to be of one mind in Christ. We need to have the same mindset if we're to be effective as Christians. If we are to do the distance and to keep going, we have to learn to have the mind of Christ. And here's the thing, the way that we learn the mind of Christ is through and with other people. Can you see that? Paul says, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche. So Paul is already getting himself involved. Paul sees his responsibility is to help them. And then later he says, and yes, and I ask you, my true companion, so that's one of the leadership team, not even named here, to help these women. Can you see what Paul is doing? He's trying to help them to see that in order to have the one mind, they need help. Euodia on one side and Syntyche on the other. They both think that they're right. But in order to understand the mind of Christ, they need help. They need each other and they need others. Now, I think that's really interesting and really significant because we live in a day where we are taught that our identity comes from within. Each of us is about, we, we create our own identity. If we just look enough inside ourselves, we'll discover who we are, and then we project who we are to others, and it's up to them to accept us as we are. In other words, we are learn, learning and taught in our society to be autonomous. But Paul here is saying, in leadership as in Christian life, we learn the mind of Christ through others and with them. We're not called to be autonomous. We're, learned, we're called to, to learn and be corrected, challenged, changed by others. And if necessary, when with others, we need to, need to learn to change our mind. Because the amazing thing is that when God puts different people together, that different perspective gives plural and incredibly rich vision. But it has to come from one mind. Think about your eyes for a moment, okay? If you've got two eyes that are looking in opposite directions, you're not very stable as a person, are you? But you've got two eyes, if they are controlled by one mind, that allows you to see in three dimensions. And the church is the same. God puts us together because we've got different understandings, and that's great, let's not iron those out. But we are called to have the same mindset. In other words, to be in the mind of Christ together. And that allows us then to play on our differences, to discuss, but we have the same fundamental direction. And that way we can move forward, we can encourage and help each other. And, and so <clears throat> Paul says, I plead. I plead with you, the two of you, come together. And then I plead with the others around, help them. The word plead there is the word encourage. It's the Barnabas word. Paraclesius, it's the word of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who comes alongside us and counsels us, encourages us, helps us. This is the standard word Paul uses to talk about Christians who refine each other, 
They help each other, they encourage each other. So the first question we need to ask in the light of this passage is who helps you? Know the mind of Christ. And who are you helping? Who is it that God has put on your, on your, on your path to sharpen you? It may be somebody you don't agree with all the time, but you recognize in them the mind of Christ. And as you discuss with them, it hones you and helps you. Friends, we need each other if we are going to do the distance. We are not made to run the race alone. I was really struck. My, my son, when I went to see Samuel do his marathon, do you know, how did he manage to do that marathon when, when he hit the wall? That's what they say. That there's a moment in the marathon running where you hit the wall and you have to break through that. How do you keep going then? Well, I'll tell you how he did it. Because one of his school teachers went with him and ran the race next to him. Isn't that amazing? He took time off. He drove Samuel to Bournemouth and he ran the race with him. That is what we're called to do together. When we hit the wall, we keep going because we have brothers and sisters next to us who encourage us, who share the mind of Christ, who say, listen, that's not the right perspective. You've, you've, how about this? We hone each other. We need each other. And if we are to stand firm in the faith, we need other people. It's Paul's first point. And he's giving it to the Philippians because he loves them and because he wants them to stay in the race. The second thing that Paul gives to them as a, as a sort of resource, not just people, is prayer. Look with me at verses four to seven. Rejoice in the Lord always. I, I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That was a very, very relevant thing to say in the ancient context, because we know that anxiety and worry was a way of life for the ancients. In the ancient world, they had gods and goddesses all over the place whose role it was to watch over people. And as a result, in the ancient world, as, as actually H was, was, was saying earlier, you spent your time offering sacrifices. <laughs> sacrifices to this god, to that god, goodness knows to which god, just in case you'd done something wrong. And you spent your life anxious and worried. Now, of course, today we don't tend to offer physical sacrifices to, to different gods, although there may be different ways we do that. But we certainly live in an anxious society. Anxiety is an enormous problem. You don't have to look very far to see all manner of anxiety conditions. Health anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorders, panic disorders, phobias, stress, or, or plain old worry. Yeah, because it happens to all of us. When we're in the race, we go day by day, but we do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we can plan everything. But when tomorrow hits, 
and we hadn't planned it, if we don't have the resources to keep going, and if suddenly we're, we're, we're threatened and we're shaken, everything falls apart. So we live in, with worry. And you know how the mechanism works. Once you get into that mindset of worry, you go round and round and round and round in circles, don't you? It was Corrie ten Boom, the um, Dutch Christian who, who um, was put to death in one of the uh, concentration camps in the Second World War. Amazing Christian writer who said, worry is the cycle, a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. A cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. And we know that, of course, don't we? It doesn't stop us worrying. And of course, the worst thing to say to somebody who's worrying is, don't worry. <laughs> that just increases the speed, doesn't it? But I'll tell you what breaks the cycle of worry is when you know that God is there. And that's what Paul says. You know, when we're running the Christian race, when we're fighting the Christian fight, when we're walking the Christian walk, we do not know what tomorrow will hold, but we do know who holds tomorrow. You remember the old thing? You don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. We know who walks with us. There's somebody running the race right next to us, and that is the Lord. And Paul says it. Verse five, the Lord is near. I mean, what more do you need to break a cycle of fear? To break a cycle of anxiety, but to know that you have the Lord right by your side. And so Paul is saying that the second thing we need in order to stay the distance is not just to break out of this sort of autonomy where we think we didn't do it on our own and we need others to help us, but also to break out of this anxiety thing, we need to know the Lord is there and we need to turn it all into prayer. Every situation is an opportunity for prayer. And I don't mean just mechanical prayer, but relational prayer, because God is there. And so we turn to him. It's really a remarkable thing, especially when you remember that Paul was in prison when he was saying this. You know, he's not in a fun fair, he's suffering. He's in hardship, and he would have everything for worrying for his life. And yet he has learned, he has learned to draw on this resource which is the presence of God in our lives, which means that wherever, whenever, whatever, we can turn things into prayer and it releases us and it brings peace. I was reading recently the book by um, Mary Kissel. Some of you may have come across Mary and her, and her husband, Barry, who live not far away, actually. And, um, Mary has recently written an autobiography which is very interesting and I recommend it. But she said this about her life. She said there was a moment when anxiety hit and she says anxiety had been building up for some time. Um, Barry, her husband, was, con was concerned with the level of stress I was carrying daily. One evening when he headed for the church hall to meet with the young people, um, I trawled the bookshelves for a concordance. I hoped I would find some biblical reference to anxiety. I did. And she found this passage. Do not be anxious about everything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
This is what she says. It was a prayer package. Pray, give thanks, and receive. It was worth a try. I poured out everything that was currently causing me inner distress. In response to the next instruction, I began to thank God as a gesture of gratitude that he had heard me and was taking action. A lightning bolt of power hit me, flooding me with a peace I'd never experienced before. It traveled from my head right through to my feet. I was consumed by it. It was immobilizing. I sat while wave upon wave of peace flooded through me. It was wonderful and also beyond understanding. I felt I had at last made a real connection with the Lord. Friends, you can pray. It's so easy to pray when things are good. The test is, can we turn situations that are not easy into prayer? Relational prayer, simple prayer. We just let it out in God's presence. And then before anything has changed, we thank him by faith that he has heard us. And the promise is, he will give us his peace. That's an extraordinary resource to be able to call on. And it's given to everyone. It's an interesting one because I think actually that's a type of prayer that we can do at any point and Paul says that in everything. Every situation elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 he says pray continually. Well now the only way you can pray, can pray continually is if you can pray and do other things at the same time, yeah? I mean otherwise it's pretty difficult to live. You know, sort of like you pray because prayer is, is, is not something you do in the place of other things. It's something that absorbs everything and it becomes a way of living. And so you can pray when you are in the middle of an exam or you can pray when you are in a crisis. You can pray when you're in a conversation. You can pray when the preacher is preaching too long. You can pray when you're washing up. You can pray just before you fall asleep. You can pray at all times. Our brains are amazing. Our minds are capable of doing things and praying at the same time. And so Paul says, do it. It's a key. It's a resource. Don't leave it on the side. This is what we need to stand firm. Prayer. Amazing. And it brings peace of mind. Third thing that Paul says, we've had people, we've had prayer. And now we have practice. Verses eight and nine. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is notable, whatever is sorry, noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have heard or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, this is really interesting because... We live in a society that not only generates anxiety, not only pushes us to autonomy, but also floods our minds with every manner of things. Probably more than ever, we're in a society that is constantly giving us information, some of it useful, some of it not, constantly flooding us with images, with words, with noise, some of it good, some of it not. And the question is, how do we train our minds 
in the midst of all that. Proverbs 15 verse 14 in the, the New Living Translation says this, a wise person is hungry for the truth, but the fool feeds on trash. Nutritionists tell us that there are three types of food for our physical bodies. Brain food, which develops the brain and actually makes you smarter, apparently. Junk food, just empty calories. They're not poison, but it's not good or bad, it's just calories. And toxic food, which is poisonous. That is the same for our minds. Spiritually speaking, the same is true in what you see, what you hear, what you allow into your mind. Some food is brain food. It will make you smarter. It will make you more godly, more emotionally mature. Some food is junk food. It's just noise. It's there and it will fill your mind with stuffing. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, there are things that are lawful but not helpful. And if we spend our life filling our minds with stuff that isn't productive, it will push everything else out. These things aren't wrong, but they're not necessarily helpful. And then there's toxic food that spiritually poisons our minds. Now here's the thing. Um, I was struck by a statistic this week that 25% of the American population spend at least eight hours a day on social media. Yes, and 60% of the population spend at least four hours a day on social media. Okay, now listen. If you spend that length of time on social media, what is feeding your mind? Is it good food or is it junk food? And here's the thing as well. The line between junk food and toxic food is very, very narrow. So easily we slip from one to the other. And actually it's not just about images, it's not just about videos, it's not about that. It's about the underlying narrative that these things carry. We just allow ourselves to be informed. Now, I mean, understand me rightly, I don't think we are called to be reactionary as Christians. You know, we're not called to set ourselves apart in a cell and protect ourselves with soundproofing and stuff. We're called to live in the world. We don't need to be fearful and we'll see that. But we do need to be wise. What is, what is feeding your mind? Where do you spend your time? What do you listen to? What is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? What do you listen to? Do you suddenly go on to Facebook or, or, or do you listen to the radio? Or, or what do you do? Luther said this. He said, Martin Luther, you can't stop a bird flying overhead, but you can stop it nesting in your hair. And I think Paul is really clear here. We have to be intentional about our minds, what we think about. The way to get wrong thoughts out is to get right thoughts in. And the amazing thing is that actually 
as we feed on the right things, the wrong things get pushed out. Sometimes we have to um, have deep healing because if we've been feeding on toxic food, it leaves traces in our minds. But the great thing is that the gospel of Jesus Christ can heal everything, can renew us completely. We don't need to be fearful, but we do need to be wise. And the key to overcoming temptation, especially when it comes so close to us and it's so difficult to resist sometimes, is precisely not to try and resist it, okay? But to replace it. Let me say that again. The key to overcoming temptation is not to resist it, but to replace it. If you try and resist temptation, you're like a little kid standing in front of biscuits. And he's saying, I'm just looking, I'm just looking. I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it, until he grabs it and eats it. The fact that you're trying to resist just reinforces its presence. You don't resist it, you replace it. You simply turn away. If you see something or you're exposed to something on the internet, you just change the channel and you move away and you replace it with something else. And as the Spirit of God just challenges you, don't think about it, do it. Because the longer you dwell on it, the more difficult it becomes. And this is where Paul's teaching is so key because the, the freedom comes through practice. The freedom comes through practice. We learn to feed well as we begin to feed well. It starts with one action, one little change. And then that little change becomes a habit. And that habit breeds character. And character brings about fruit in our lives. It doesn't happen straight away. It happens quite intentionally as we put things in our lives in place that we can feed on, that will help us as Christians. Now, <clears throat> the, 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 the traditional teaching on this is it talks in terms of disciplines, the discipline of study, the discipline of reading the Bible, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of fasting, the discipline of Sabbath rest. Those are disciplines. But Paul, I think, points beyond that. I mean, I think that's absolutely essential. But Paul is actually saying here, be intentionally positive. Seek out everything that is good. That means learn to have the mindset of God that, that looks for what God is doing and rejoices in it. And you'll be surprised where that is because there's far more good than there is bad around us. It's just that we focus on the wrong stuff. And Paul is saying, look intentionally for the good things God does and rejoice in them, dwell on them, feed on them, think on them. And as you do that, you create neural pathways in your brain. You're renewed. Your mind is renewed. You train yourself and you learn godliness. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, wherever it's to be found, whatever's lovely, think on those things. There's the resource, friends. Wherever we are, we can choose to think on the good things. We can choose to dwell on them. And as we do that, we create pathways in our minds. We renew our minds. And we open up potential for God to work in our lives. So what are your regular habits? How do you begin the day? What enters your mind? How can you be more intentional about feeding on the good things? 
I think these are all questions that come out of this passage. As we hear Paul offering us that amazing third resource. The first resource was people. The second resource was prayer. And the third resource is practice. Right practices. Rhythms of life. I finish with this. Rick Warren, great Christian teacher, um, helps us by saying, this is what he says, think, okay? Think is this. If you're taking notes, here we go. T, test every thought. Test every thought. H, he says, helmet your head. Helmet your head. That's his way of saying, put on the helmet of salvation. Know who you are. I, imagine great thoughts for God. Dare to dream. N, nourish a godly mind. And K, keep on learning. Interesting. Well, there you go. I think Paul's given us some food, hasn't he? Three resources for guarding, strengthening, renewing our minds, keeping going. Number one, people who help us to forge the mind of Christ. Number two, prayer, enabling us to receive the peace of God. And number three, practice for living out and living in the blessings of God. Therefore, Paul says, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, and that means my medal, (laughs) stand firm in this way, dear friends. Amen.